0: You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Myesha Cherry. Welcome to the place where
1: philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Christy Dotson. Christy is an Associate Professor of Philosophy and Responsible Administrator for the African American and African Studies Program at Michigan State University. This past year, she was a Senior Fellow at Columbia Law School Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies. Her interest is in epistemology, feminist philosophy, and critical philosophy of race. In this episode, we talk ignorance, Black feminist thought, and academic passing if you want to know how ignorance perpetuates oppression and so much more, you want to stay tuned. Hello, Christy, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you? I'm doing well, Maisha. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. So, Christy, how did you get interested in philosophy?
0: You know, that's a very difficult... Well, that's a hard one to start with, uh, honestly, because I don't know... If, if I ever really got interested <laughs> in uh, philosophy, <laughs> I would think, say that. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, yeah. I mean, because I, I, I didn't. I didn't get interested in philosophy. I certainly didn't gravitate towards it as an undergrad. I never took an undergraduate class in philosophy. Um, I got a master's degree in literature, uh, particularly literary theory, without ever taking a philosophy class. I, my first philosophy class was a grad class, and it was really a pragmatic move for me. I wanted to continue doing theory. Um, that's what it was kind of called in literary theory, but literary theory jobs had dried up and, um, to nothing. And so literally got the advice to go to philosophy because there's more jobs there. Now that makes people laugh usually, (laughs) but it's still the case that there are more jobs in philosophy than literary theory. So (laughs) it was a prudential and, uh, and very much instrumental move. And once I got to philosophy and realized what it was, it was kind of too late to quit. So I figured out,
1: uh, (laughs) I figured out how to, um, to make this work. Okay, so so let me ask you this question then, which is very Mm -hmm. connected to the first. So once you're in philosophy, right, how did you figure out exactly what you would intellectually pursue?
0: Yeah, so I've always been interested. um, I've always been interested in knowledge. I mean, even in English departments, even in uh, my black studies degree, I was always interested in what accounts were given credibility, why people believed the things they believed, Uh, you know, that's. That's kind of a set in a cluster of questions. I I mean, I think I've had since very young, actually, um, very young. So it wasn't too difficult. In the first epistemology class I ever took was an epistemology of testimony class um, with David Henderson at Memphis. And it was clear to me that this was probably the area I was going to be working in because it was the only class where I felt the need to engage every day. Now, I disagreed with everything I read, but it was <laughs> the only thing that got anything from me. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I just gravitated towards it almost because I was appalled um, by it, you know, <laughs> by some of the things that were being said. But, you know, it kind of it caught me there. It caught me. Epistemology got me.
1: So let's let's talk a little bit about epistemology a little bit about knowledge. What what is what is epistemic oppression and and what ways do you see it play out in society and also in certain academic fields such as philosophy?
0: That's a good question. I mean it's a, you know for me and I'm going to get just give a broad definition cuz I give these really technical ticky-tacky definitions when I write, but ultimately for me epistemic oppression um Constitutes landscapes where there are, you know, pervasive harms that are the result of managed and, excuse me, unmanaged ignorance. I mean, I think that unmanaged and unrecognized ignorance harms people. That's mm. what I think.
1: Okay. <laughs>
0: and ultimately, there are landscapes uh, where people's unmanaged and unacknowledged ignorance actually is allowed to cause harm. Kind of an example of that, I think, is, you know, some of the responses to Black Lives Matter, particularly to um, the Ferguson civil civic unrest, right? The um, idea that Officer Darren Warren acted reasonably in in killing Michael Brown and the kind of arguments that you get on that, you know, that the police um, in the line of duty can only really be criminally charged if they are killing... uh, an unproblematic victim or what people will say, a perfect victim. Mm-hmm. You know, Michael Brown apparently was a problematic victim. Hence, you know, as I would go, uh, he is not criminally accountable for killing Michael Brown. And if he's not, you know, crimin- crimin- excuse me, criminally accountable for killing Michael Brown, um, then there's no reason for significant civic regard, right? This kind of argument, which I've heard time and time and time and time again, is grounded in so much ignorance about our world, about state-sanctioned violence against Black people, um, you know, about the trustworthiness of our judicial system, about the what actually constitutes racial bias in the system, and what reasonable even means. I mean, there's the spectrum of how much unmanaged ignorance is in that in those kinds of arguments uh, really is profound. What's what's difficult about that is that you get a jury with those kinds of beliefs and there's a bunch of people whose deaths won't get any justice. Now, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of the prison system, yeah. but I think that there is something to be said for, you know, kind of entire populations that are incapable of tracking harms to people and how that inca- incapacity actually perpetuates harm. And those particular harms, you know, Okay. to me, there is an epistemic dimension to these kinds of things, you know, um, in the form of kind of just unmanaged and unrecognized ignorance.
1: And, And let me ask you this. Must ignorance always be intentional for it to be ignorant?
0: No. In fact, I think most times it's not. In fact, I think that I say unmanaged and unacknowledged because I think there's all different kinds of forms of ignorance and some of them are good for us. (laughs) <laughs> some of them are good. I think most of the ignorance that that we might that we hold actually is unacknowledged and unmanaged. I mean, it's a not knowing that we don't know kind of problem. There are some things that we actually know we don't know, and, and paradoxically, we can actually manage those forms of ignorance precisely because we know we don't know. But when we don't. There's no, you know, what Jose Medina calls, there's no way to gain epistemic friction, right? No way to get a kind of handle on what we don't know so that we're just completely ignoring it. Um, No matter how relevant it might be to a particular discussion, our motive, you know, our motive operating is to just ignore it. And that ignorance, that ignoring, right, I think actually can cause harm. I think it perpetuates it it certainly can anyway
1: you talk about you offer up a criticism to miranda fricker on on this next question so how is it possible to kind of perpetuate epistemic oppression even while you're working to address it i mean i
0: think that it really does fall from the last question you asked me which is you know can we be ignorant and not know it or at least be unaware of it and and you know can it be unintentional I think that we all have unmanaged and unrecognized ignorance, you know. I mean, just because I talk about it doesn't mean I've somehow rooted it out in my life. Um, it's probably, ignorance may be one of the basic conditions for beings like ourselves. So the idea that, you know, because I think through epistemic oppression in my daily work, I never perpetrate it, I think is, is actually silly, because I know, for a fact that I have unmanaged and unrecognized ignorance. The world is complex. People's situations are exceedingly complex. Group situations are exceedingly complex. I mean, keeping track of all the ways, all the ways people are existing in the world compromise their well-being is damn near impossible right yeah um in all the ways that i am somebody else's problem that's also impossible so what does it mean to you know to to live in the world realizing that one is always capable of of perpetrating this against someone else and how does that change our attitude towards any any given proposition for example that we claim to know how does it build in a certain number of, you know, uncertainty, maybe a certain level of openness and maybe a certain level of humility?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that there are ways that we can probably learn to address it. But I also think that we'll never it'll, the elimination of it will require significant structural and material shifts.
1: You know, this is making me think about the recent controversy with Matt Damon. Are you familiar with this? Oh, right.
0: When he did the whole white explaining on... Uh...
1: <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> okay. I, I, I want you... Because because in some ways, some people may say, well, you know, Matt Damon, he does have intentions of diversifying Hollywood, mm-hmm. right? He's trying to hire people on camera or whatever. And then he has this encounter, right? You have good intentions, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. and but then ignorance comes out and it seems right. like you're harming more so so what is the cure to make sure that the next time that matt damon talks or any of us we speak even with our good mm-hmm. intentions that we don't bump into this ignorance that can perpetuate certain oppressions
0: you know i mean that's a really good question and not even and not one i think i have an answer to. these are the kinds of questions i think that the work that i do tries to prompt like these we, we need to ask these questions we need to ask and propose better and worse solutions to it. I can give you some solutions that I've heard recently that I thought were interesting. One is that it's one thing to decide that you want to try to integrate or whatever the word we want to use, um, you know, Hollywood, uh, movies, TV, um, with diversity. And imagine that, you know, in terms of representation, that's fine, I suppose. But, you know, what does it mean to, build community with these folks, right? Yeah. So if one of the, the difficulties, and I think one of the problems of the Matt Damon account is that he wasn't community building in that moment. Mm-hmm. Dude was just trying to be in lecture mode. He's like, I'm going to teach you about you. What kind of arrogance did that take? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, and this is what I mean when I say that maybe I'm not saying the full solution. to This is humility, because I, like I said, some of this stuff is structural. Matt Damon is in a world where what he said makes sense and his behavior makes sense. And uh, that is what that's how in some ways he shaped and his behavior and conduct is shaped. But it would be nice if he had taken an attitude of community building and saying, look, here's my opinion. What's yours? Even that is farther than what he did like let me screw you about oh, i'm sorry white man really um i think that i think it's interesting to think about what kind of attitudes we can have towards uh people who might be coming from different positions than we have i don't think that's going to be easy good or uniform all the time because we don't always recognize that a different position um, might be viable and we certainly don't recognize the, in, the, the limits of our own right yeah. That's why these, these forms of ignorance are unmanaged and unrecognized. You know, the question is, but I also think that this is, notice how I talked about what Matt might be able to do. Because here's what I don't think that, and this is often how people answer this, like, well, would you, you just tell Matt Damon about himself. You know how many times we would have to stop and educate somebody with unmanaged and unrecognized ignorance on their ignorance? <laughs> how many fights that's going to be and how many rubber band um, moments we're going to have. I mean, that's everybody. You know, I mean, there's so many people who are existing and persisting with this kind of ignorance. Like, let's just use for an example, you know, the you know, st- state sanctioned violence against black people. There's just too many people. And don't get me wrong. Some of us are going to be like, it is my duty. But I think Audre Lorde said this best. I mean, the biggest trick the master ever sold and told was the idea that we it was our job in our life to educate them. You know, I mean, I don't know if my position is in the in the position of being, I don't know, lectured to by someone who doesn't know as well something that, you know, it is, you know, always your job to then educate back. Right. Um, I guess the question is for me, those people, you know, how do we manage our our unrecognized ignorance? What kind of attitude can we have towards our unrecognized ignorance so that the onus doesn't always fall on the person who knows better?
1: So philosophy has, if you didn't know, has historically marginalized the voices of minority communities. Right. Things are beginning to change, but... I think black feminist voices are still missing. Mm-hmm. Without forcing you in your own words, what you call the cultural justification, right? Without forcing you to enter into that kind of dimension, how mm-hmm. will philosophy, as well as other disciplines, particularly those disciplines kind of concerned with theory, as well as social activists, be mm-hmm. better off by taking black feminist thoughts seriously?
0: I mean, I think one thing that is pretty consistent in black feminist thought generally is kind of a rejection of something that, you know, that I call fundamentality, like a rejection that there are fundamental things in the universe that everything kind of boils down to that. There are things that are both, you know, foundational and central. I find that critique from black feminist thought are very much, excuse me, that commitment to rejecting fundamentality in black feminist thought really important for understanding what it would mean to have genuine diversity in any given landscape, because The idea would be that all this junk that we believe doesn't have to unify because the unification narrative is something that we're probably going to reject, mainly because the world is far too complicated um, for that. Not to say it doesn't unify somehow, but we're just not the kind of beings who have access to it. So what would it mean if people were to start thinking less about how someone's position or their way of being or their way of understanding philosophical labor or literary criticism or... I don't know, creative writing, if they didn't require it to somehow um, unify with whatever commitments that they have, right? Because that's some of the things that you get in professional philosophy. Like, this is my, these are my metaphilosophical positions. And from this position, I can't make sense of what you're saying. So what you're saying must be crazy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you like, or these don't unify. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> That what you actually do has, is illuminating for what it is it illuminates. And there are whole other things to do that are illuminating differently. Um, one of the things that many black feminists say, but particularly you'll find this in Audrey Lord's work, is that a different kind of problem is a solution. Now, there's a whole bunch of folks who are going to find issue with that because they're going to be like, but there's a contradiction, you know, yeah. that stuff. And you're like, yeah, maybe or maybe not. Or maybe the, contra- you know, the level at which this is not a contradiction is not something you can think Or quite possibly it is a contradiction. And so what? (laughs) Because both of these might still be true. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, the flexibility one has to actually take on to do black feminist theory. I think it's just plain useful, man. I just think it's plain useful. And I do think that there's a great deal of flexibility. I've never met two black feminists alike, even though people often paint us with the same brushes. Um, we have different positions. We have different sets of assumptions. One assumption we all might have is objection to fundamentality, but we don't all accept or reject something like disaggregation. You know, there are different inquiries that can be uh, investigated separate. Some of us believe that, some of us don't. Some of us believe in transcendence, that there's an idea that this idea is somehow unrelated to this other. The one others of us don't believe that at all right I mean so there's all the ways to think about um how ideas are connected in conceptual landscapes that black feminists have been thinking through almost primarily because and I think motivated by the fact that we have a complicated social existence. Fundamentality doesn't help to make sense of black womanness. it may help you make sense of blackness and maybe some version of womanness. But not necessarily any combination of those two things. So, I mean, having to come up with um, what it would mean to think through multiple vectors at once leaves aside some of the, in, the rigidity of um, metaphilosophical assumptions you'll get from you know, some areas, particularly those who, who actually adhere to something like fundamentality. So I think there's lots of things to learn from black feminist thought, particularly in philosophy and beyond, but also in social activism. The idea that what's pressing on your plate may not be pressing on somebody else's, but that both of you working on the areas that you're working on may be moving all of this forward instead of fighting each other, Um, which you can often find in social activist circles.
1: Last year, President Obama, the Obama administration created the My Brother's Keeper initiative. And it was an initiative that was created to help black boys stay on track. Uh, There were lots of people who found that problematic and uh, particularly criticism is that black girls were being left out. And so Mm -hmm. the why we can't wait campaign was created. Tell me Mm -hmm. exactly what is the why we can't wait campaign and why did you decide to, to be a part of it?
0: Um, You know, you really pretty much summarized that really well, because, I mean, the campaign was really to challenge the gender-exclusive nature of President Obama's, at that point, signature racial justice initiative, right? My Brother's Keeper. And and I think it's important to note that this is an initiative, you know, not a program. So in thinking about why we can't wait and where it came from, there was this sensibility that we've had gender-exclusive programs forever. Like, My Brother's Keeper started as a gender-exclusive program alongside maybe something that was gender exclusive towards girls, like, you know, um, so they had these programs existing alongside each other. But when you have a presidential initiative, things happen differently than a program. For example, an initiative organizes the air in a certain way. What does racial justice for youth look like? I mean, and what he essentially said is it looks like boys of color, right? Now, Again, as a program, NBK is a great idea. As as an initiative where funding schedules are going to be impacted, where philanthropies, um, monies are going to be impacted, where even federal dollars might be impacted, it's a problem because it makes it seem as if there can be something like a trickle-down racial justice initiative that when we help these boys of color, we will also help girls of color. And, you know, I think that at some point, um, Valerie Jarrett actually said something akin to this, like, hey, this is a trickle-down racial justice initiative. The boys can marry the girls, right? Yeah, That's absurd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so there were some of us who were like, no, 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 that's absurd, right? I mean, gender-exclusive programs aside, that may or may not be a good, pro, you know, idea. A gender-exclusive initiative at the level of the bully pulpit is a terrible idea. And certainly, immediately, you saw defunded through their philanthropies and through their funding sources. Because the president said racial justice for youth of color is about boys, right? That's a problem. That is a problem. So that's what, why we can't wait, came. I mean, we were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, this is a bad idea. This is going to cause problems. It in many ways has caused problems. Um, and so that's essentially what it was. A group of maybe 15, uh, 16 of us, who kind of were like, all right, well, we'll we'll try to do something and get you know try to galvanize a population towards realizing that this may not be the best measure for youth of color justice in the United States.
1: How, how do you make p- sense of, of people's resistance to the campaign?
0: Oh, um, you know, unmanaged and unrecognized. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I,
0: I that is my answer I, because I think that there is this sense that girls of color are doing fine you know i think there is the sense that for example black girls are doing fine and then and they're just kind of not i mean there's also this sense that black women that you know, women of color are doing fine i don't i don't quite know why you know these myths continue to perpetuate i think one of the reasons uh why is that people only count some wrongs as wrong um you know i think they i think when we some of the op-eds we put out salamisha tillett did an op-ed that brought up the the statistics on you know gender-based violence or sexual violence against girls of color women of color which is you know kind of staggering figures and somebody in the comment section said there should be a trigger warning here by the way um, but um uh, you know rape is a a small cut that you can survive from unlike murder right wow and, and that is that's That is unmanaged, unrecognized, and pernicious ignorance. Um, And so, you know, when people are looking at the harms that are perpetuated against girls of color and women of color as minor, when compared to what happens to boys and men of color... I mean, I think that it's not a surprise when they're like, wait a minute, those girls are doing fine because the things that happen to them really just isn't as bad as the things that happens to boys. And then you have this skewed valuation system or devaluation, you know, of girls of color and women of color, which is not a surprise. It's been around for a long, long time. Now, you can push on me and you probably should and say, but you do know, Christy, that some of the biggest detractors from why we can't wait were black women themselves, Mm -hmm. right? Um, which is also true. I talked to many black women who only had daughters who were like, "I think that my daughters don't need anything," even though they would complain about all the ways they were sexually harassed in school, all the fears they had for them with respect to their, you know, I don't know, self-esteem, self-worth, and the pipeline, the social marginality that you also have for, you know, particularly black girls and young, I mean, girls of color. It didn't matter. I mean, it just didn't matter. They, they just didn't value that. Um, the way they valued and, and were taught to value what happens to boys and young men of color. Hmm. And uh, yeah, for me, I don't think it's an either or thing. I think that what we were trying to push for and why we can't wait wasn't ignore boys and pay attention to girls, but rather if this is a youth of color initiative, it should be about all
1: youth of color. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> that... At the end of the day, is what we couldn't understand. People couldn't get on board with, and I think often the difficulty and the resistance came from the idea that you know I'm going to be honest. Young girls of color and girls of color are often not treated like children. <laughs> I mean, there's, they're just young women, right? Um, with you know women's problems. I think that even women of color feminists can be guilty of this when they say you know we speak for you know all girlhood and women populations, but they never actually thought seriously about the challenge that face girls. They are not little women. They are girls Mm -hmm. (laughs) with different challenges. Um, And there's not a whole lot of thinking about that, even in feminist circles, to be honest with you. So, I mean, some of the pushback, uh, it comes from so many fours, but at the end of the day, my broad answer is unmanaged and unrecognized ignorance.
1: At Michigan State, you provide theory to social scientists. I like the kind of description that you gave. I heard you gave about how you all interact and, and for philosophers to interact with social sciences, I think is a lovely thing. As you just said, you also participate in social campaigns. And in a recent blog article on Philosopher, um, you describe your work as, as quote, doing philosophy from a position of service, end quote. So yep. I want to know, where did this sense of call come from? Mm. and And how do you respond to thinkers who may not share this sense of intellectual purpose.
0: You know, it came from my mom, I think. Uh, you know, my my mother was so disappointed when I decided to go and get a PhD in philosophy. Because <laughs> um, she had raised, as far as she was concerned, you know, social justice activists. My older sister is a founder and principal of a high school that quite frankly, quite literally targets, you know, young people who have been kicked out of the school system. She was like, you know, give me your worst kids and I'll give you the next college student. That's her motto. Um, But that came from my mama. You know, I mean, we were raised like, we lift as we climb and, you know, I am because we are kind of mentalities. And the idea That philosophy, from the place of philosophy, one couldn't maintain that as something my mother was certain of. I mean, certain. She took this class as a black studies major that literally was on philosophy and black people, which literally went through all the anti-black sentiments since, like, the um, Enlightenment. Uh, So for her, she was like, that's an anti-black, anti-community-centered place. So, you know, how I mean, you can be who you want to be. But at the end of the day, from what I know about you, you know, there's no way to be happy from that space. Early on, I thought she might write about that. I really had when I figured out what philosophy was, I thought or or at least what I thought it might be about in terms of a profession. I I didn't have any sense of how I was going to make it work for me. It wasn't until I actually got on the job and um, was able to talk to, for example, black feminist social science scientists in sociology, in even kinesiology, which is more like sports, you know, sports sociology, like those kinds of things. These, the black feminists that I was able to connect with on my job when I realized that they were kind of struggling with theoretical frameworks for their empirical research, for their, you know, you know mostly qualitative research that didn't also pathologize black women or black girls, you know, they were like, we don't, you know, nothing actually helps us to isolate issues facing black women and girls. That doesn't also require us to construct them as somehow deficient, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so in talking to them, I thought, well, was it just a theory you need? Cause you know, I can. I've been trained in the whole theory thing, so the conversations that you know we would have sometimes just in my living room about what they needed a theory to do, and almost all of them I think required you know shifts and frames, the epistemic oppression work, and trying to uh, to stave off a certain understanding of even a theoretical framework for a qualitative research um uh, project. I think those are the things where I started to realize that wait a minute, this skill set that I managed to pick up actually has a use, you know, I could do something with this, which is always something I was trying to do. I I just, I don't, I don't want to theorize for the sake of theorizing. I'm not against it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it wasn't, it doesn't, it wouldn't make me happy. So, you know, the black feminist in me that, and the one I was raised to be from my mama's knee just wouldn't make me happy. So running these social scientists was kind of like, I don't even know. It was, it was like an oasis, like, wait, there's, there's more to this than that and so i i continually talk to social scientists about what kind of theories they might find useful like i said i don't write theories that i mean i write theories that they find useful but ultimately they are my theories you know yeah. they are the things that i think in the world i don't put things in the world that i don't i can't stand behind and defend mm-hmm. um but they have a purpose right they're not just my theories as far as talking to people who may not share this sense of intellectual purpose i have a hard time believing that People don't share it in some sense. And, you know, what I mean by that is philosophy is always in some degree, in my estimation, outward looking, you know, unless you're considering metaphilosophy and most folks don't do that. (laughs) I wish they did more of it, but they don't. Unless you're thinking through, you know, kind of metaphilosophical questions, you're thinking about something else. It may be something else besides philosophy itself, right? And it may be something that ultimately is an intellectual puzzle for some people, but an intellectual puzzle that not that other people are probably interested in, right? I mean, there are very few of us who are doing this work without some measure of community, right? That they're actually talking to somebody else. Even if it's only three other people, there are other people they're usually talking to. So I have a hard time believing that even their work is not in the service of something. You know, I mean, I just don't, i don 't know what philosophy is outside of the service of something in my own projects, I just amplify that dimension because that 's the most important part to me, but I have a hard time believing that there 's anyone doing work in philosophy professional philosophy who is not in the service of some project like I just have a hard time believing it
1: i 'm thinking back a couple of years ago at the Eastern APA. It was the panel mm-hmm. that you you chaired. And I remember it was about, you know, the status of blacks in philosophy and Mm -hmm. also how to recruit African-American students to philosophy programs. And I remember, of course, there was a lot of people who did social and political and ethics Mm -hmm. in the space um, who were black. But I remember a black professor out of New Jersey raised his hand. And -hmm. the question that he asked was, what if you're just interested in puzzles? He's a logician. What if you're just interested Mm -hmm. in puzzles? And Mm -hmm. I think your response really speaks to him, right? Because, you know, the assumption for lots of people, I think- people's conception of or perception of black people in academia is that they do work in like African American studies or the social right. sciences or right. if they do philosophy then they work on social and political. That's and I think right. it's a it's a good thing, even for minorities in philosophy, who may not be interested in those things, that Definitely. they can still feel a sense of, of calling beyond this kind of isolation kind of work may still be in service even if they decide to do work such as logic, et cetera.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, yes, I actually remember this. I, I remember this, this moment very clearly. And, and yeah, I think that, I think there's a way in which the work that we do in philosophy can lead us to think that we are isolated, but ultimately I, I really do have a hard time believing that we write only for ourselves, that we actually lay on the couch, like puzzle solved. I'm done. <laughs> um, that's not usually how it works. Well, I mean, we're in communities, you know, we're having conversations and yes, I don't think that all engagement has to be, you know, with social and political landscapes. And, you know, I, I actually feel uh, for this question, because although I do, I think the work that I do has social and political ramifications, I don't list and can't list social and political philosophy. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I don't know anything. I mean, I read Rawls like in Ron Ron's <laughs> class, like a thousand years ago. I don't know what that dude says, you know, <laughs> I I've spent more time in epistemologist. I probably know far more about what, you know, let me pick somebody whose position is so far from mine, what Richard Fumerton at the University of Iowa says about internalism and skepticism than I know about what Rawls says about liberal democracy. I don't know. You know, I don't know. And you're I mean, black. You know, and I'm black. And I you know, and I think that shocks people sometimes and they're like, What do you think about Rawls? Who? I don't you know. look <laughs> Interesting. I'm glad that we that there's lots of folks doing all kinds of different things. But you know, I, I do think that philosophy, and I said this in that same piece, um, that philosophy from the position of service piece, I think philosophy is always in the service of something other than itself, even as an intellectual puzzle, and that's a good thing. I think that's a that's a good structure for it. I think that's one of the reasons why I think it should be diversified, because I think almost every other field. Is in the service of something, uh, you know, other in in itself. Literature in some ways, literary critics has a different kind of structure, as I said there. And that structure can be constraining. Philosophy doesn't have that. I mean, that's kind of once I stumbled across that, I was like, that's actually, you know, I can work with that. (laughs) Yeah. I can work with the fact that this is always outward looking. I can work with that. Now, now we have to stop from, you know, requiring people to outward look certain kinds of ways. but (laughs) And that's, you know, a project for diversity, I imagine. But to me, the structure of, you know, philosophical engagement, particularly in a professional capacity, but I think philosophical engagement, period, the contemplative nature of this endeavor is outward looking. That's good. I mean, even if we think of it as inward, because people are like, well, I'm trying to figure out my self-knowledge or something like that. I'm like, yeah, but you're not alone, so stop it.
1: You were saying that when you got on the job market, you were... Well, when you got into the market, when you first got your first job, you were even asking Mm -hmm. yourself, how is how is it going to work for you? Right. Trying to figure out how it's going to work for you. That's right. So uh, there's a lot of people in academia, women, minorities, even men that may feel like they're passing academically. Mm -hmm. So can, can you talk a little bit about academic passing? Does it exist in other academic fields other than philosophy? And perhaps give some advice to people who are tired of academically or feeling like they're academically passing?
0: All right. I mean, that's a really good. I, you know, for me, academic passing kind of means a lot of things, but it's kind of like it's the demand to appear and perform certain behaviors of legitimacy. You know, you know, the whole sound like a real quote unquote philosopher, you know, sound like I wasn't going to go. I'm not going to go there. Uh, Cut that out. (laughs) I mean, the real philosophers, that's fine. But anything else I was going to say, no, um, (laughs) I mean, it's the, it's the idea that there's a way to perform professionalization at any given field, and there's a way not to perform it, you know. And I call that a certain kind of academic passing, mainly if it's a constraint on our behavior that we wouldn't ordinarily have picked up, but have to pick up for the sake of our own claims to legitimacy. Um, does it exist outside of philosophy? Yep. Yeah, I think it, it probably exists in, in every professional field yeah. maybe everywhere actually mm-hmm. <laughs> but i can i give advice i mean and let me yeah i guess i'll go this far i think it exists in other fields besides philosophy i think it definitely exists all across the academy i mean this is a neoliberal neocolonial white supremacist western academy there's certain expectations for what it means to be competent what it means to appear competent what it means to do This work, whatever that might be. And it usually doesn't look anything like me or you, Maisha. So, I mean, there are these performances people demand to, in some ways, even overcome that. Because you can see, you know, people who don't fit, you know, the kind of able bodied, English speaking, middle class, white male, heterosexual image of competence overperforming sometimes competence. Yeah. Right? To extreme degrees. And I, I I can pretend as if, well, I don't know. I mean, I think that I have done that in the past. But in some ways, I think that the kind of academic passing that people have often required of me, I, I just, I won't do. There are some things that I kind of got lucky in, because so this is into the advice area. I mean, I kind of got lucky. Some of the questions that I have been asking since junior high, really, are questions are pretty standard in analytic epistemology, right? That's Luck. You know, it didn't have to happen that way. And it's kind of it comes with a certain set of privileges where as the things that I think are interesting actually have a legitimacy already. Right. So to a certain degree, I think that the the ways in which academic passing has hit my life is not nearly as extreme as it can be. Nor, I think, as um, damaging. So I think that someone should take my advice on academic passing that I'm about to give with a grain of salt. Because I I never don't acknowledge the privilege of the fact that comes from the fact that the questions that I just want to answer are pervasive questions in professional philosophy today. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, that's a real privilege. And I'm not even going to try to pretend like I don't have it. For me, academic passing was as simple as stopping it. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm just like, I'm not going to do it. You know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm not, for example, from lower socioeconomic background. I'm not going to pretend lots of things that I don't pretend and I kind of never really have. But again, I'm protected by the fact that my, the questions, my inquiry, um, aren't as fringe, quote unquote. As they can be, right? So, I mean, that's hard to give advice on. I really think that there are better people to give advice on it because, I mean, I just noticed it, right? I was like, "Wow, there's this demand to perform this, and there are some ways in which my natural orientation already performs it." Yeah. Uh, But that's just how I. That's just how I be, for lack of a better phrase. And it, it strikes me that. That was a little bit uncomfortable for me, which is why I kind of saw it. I'm like, in all the other areas by which I am underprivileged, I'm noticing this privilege, you know? I mean, I'm noticing it because it usually doesn't work this way. (laughs) It usually doesn't work this way where something I want to say is something you want to hear. That's odd. And so I think that, so anything, any advice I have, like just stop or, you know, do it this long and no longer, I think will be tainted by that privilege, to be quite frank.
1: Someone may say, "Well, Christy, you know, it's professionalism, right? It's the it's the rules set by a particular profession." And, yeah. you know, when you follow rules, they not, may not be 100% authentically you, but it's something that you do as being part of the job. So so what do you say in response to that?
0: I mean, in response to that, I'm going to say that professionalism doesn't emerge ex nihilo. We got to look at the actual institutions in which these so-called professional standards are actually being, um, I don't know, perpetuated and demanded. The fact of the matter is, is the academy, academics, you know, academic fields they are neocolonial. They are culturally imperialist. <laughs> you know, I mean, there is a, a certain kind of neoliberalism that's a faux neoliberal. I mean, the idea that, you know, the idea that there's these inalienable rights that some of us have to actually um, perform to get, <laughs> right? And I think that uh, thinking about this in terms of professionalism doesn't actually take into account that not everybody has to go obey them, right? I mean, I've seen, look... I've seen, let me be clear, I've seen white dudes show up to interviews in sweats (laughs) and people look straight past that to, that guy's really smart. And I have seen um, women, for example, white women, Who's, you know, everyone knows there was this one Boston APA where the luggage was lost, like almost everybody's luggage was lost, right? And there was a white woman candidate who came in in some apple bottom jeans, I swear for God, and the like these heels, these heels, she was doing these heels. And I thought, whatever, she gave a great interview. But the commentary after that, because she couldn't perform a certain level of professionalism that nobody could that day. Mm-hmm said to me it's not just professionalism that actually her failure to perform a certain over a certain for her failure to perform in such a way where the presumed incompetence that she came in with was challenged hurt her more than all the white dudes who walked in with sweats even though they were all in the same condition right and everybody knew it it wasn't a secret so when i hear stuff like that i hear unmanaged and unrecognized ignorance <laughs> Who don't realize that we're all we're not all encountering the same professional context and we certainly aren't don't have, you know, I, I should say uniform demands for what it means to perform professionalism.
1: So what music do you listen to when you are preparing for a talk? Because I noticed that you had your Beats earphones when you was preparing it's, for your talk at Yale. So I want to know what was the music you listened to and is that music different when you're writing?
0: yes and no so yeah the music i was listening to um i listen to anything from like just another day uh by queen latifah to out here grinded by dj college (laughs) um depending on the day like if i want to hear you know kind of hip-hop and rap there are days when i'm like i'm more r&b today and i'll listen to you know anything from do my thing from estelle to rise up by Andrew day but yeah, usually it's one of those, you know, kind of songs. I like Messengers by Lecrae. It's one of my things. I love that song. If I feel like the audience is going to be, you know, going to give me a, something of a difficult Q and A, I'll listen to things like, you know, All of the Above by Mayno or Let's Go by Trick Daddy. Um, I mean, I listen to anything that has, you know, either a beat that I admire and a beat that I can just tone out the music to and kind of, you know, get hype with, or something where the words actually speak to me. I listen to Lauryn Hill. Everything is everything. Born to do by Matthew Santos. Um, I think when I'm writing, uh, the same kind of applies. It depends on the day. Like if I'm feeling, you know, like I shouldn't, like I'm tired, I don't want to write. I'll put the stuff that's more upbeat on. If I'm feeling like I'm hype and upbeat is just going to take me out of writing mood, I'll go to the more calmer, more smoother R and B stuff. But that's, yeah, I think it all really depends on my mood. But usually I'm in the hip-hop and R&B range. Every now and then I'll listen to somebody like Matthew Santos, which calls himself a folk singer, but he was on um, a bunch of songs by God, what's that dude's name? It was Superstar uh, Lupe Fiasco. So I like heard him on a hook and I was like, I like the way that dude sings. But anyway, yeah, so mostly hip-hop, um, R&B stuff that Either has a positive message, or you know, has the ability to get my blood going.
1: So this next question is 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 not intended to get all up in your business. I know. your partner, you know, you're a philosopher, but your partner is also a philosopher. That's and, true. you know, there's people in my department who says, you know, younger people in my department says, you know, I would never marry another philosopher. Right, so right. so here, here's the question I always wonder about philosophers who do decide to hook up, right? Okay. <laughs> is it hard for any of you all to actually win an argument? You know,
0: I saw that question on there and I just laughed because <laughs> um, people actually ask this a lot, believe it or not. Um, I'm not
1: original, shucks. No, no, but,
0: you know, I think it's one of those things you're like what how does that work i think that well, we rarely argue to be fair we've been together 12 13 i don't know you know so, so, over 10 so you years. all agree about everything no we don't agree about everything we just don't think everything's worth an argument um i think that that's one of those things of why did you get into philosophy that <laughs> you get into philosophy because you like to argue i think that that's a difficult relationship to maintain um i think both you know he and i have this attitude of service like this Actually, is something we could use towards other ends. So yeah. I don't know if we wear our philosophy hats 24 hours a day. That helps, you know. You no, know. so we rarely have arguments. Not now. Saying that, every now and then we will walk into philosophical argument territory, and that shit can get ugly. Um, I think that you know we have very different orientations. You know, he's kind of an ethicist. You know, justice guy. I'm kind of an epistemologist, justice gal, and let's be clear. You know, we don't meet on some of the stuff. I mean, I I, I have never quite understood ethics and the orientation that go into ethics. My sensibilities don't match up with some of the things you get from uh, normative ethics particularly. Okay. So, you know, I think the same could be said for him on the epistemology side. He's like, that shit's ridiculous, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> um, we kind of try and stay away from, you know, philosophical argument territory. But every now and then... Uh, we get into those arguments and uh, nobody wins those. That's why we don't really do them because, you know, nobody wins. I mean, all you're going to do is have these conflicts of, of, of sensibilities yeah. and it'll just end up with what always ends up in philosophy. I think I'm right. Right. I mean, that's no way to build a house. Tell you that. <laughs> well, I think I'm right. And I think I'm right. So, you know, we kind of let it go there. Hardly ever, hardly ever. And, you know, we have this uh, division of labor in the house too, <laughs> that actually helps. Like some things we, we created structures of authority for each other. Um, and, you know, walking over that can can cause issues. So, I mean, yeah. Anyway, it works for us, though.
1: We're happy. So last question. What was the, the first black feminist text you read and what was it about it that appealed to you?
0: Um the first black feminist test uh text I read was Double Jeopardy by Francis Beale. Um and you know what appealed what appealed how it appealed to me and, and what appealed what appealed to me, that's what I should say. Um it, it seemed to be about me. I mean, that was one of those things, you know. I spent my entire kind of undergraduate I was a black studies major and yet I spent my almost entire undergraduate career reading stuff that could have been about me and I could, you know, understand how it could impact me, but um, wasn't directly, didn't directly take black women, black girls as a subject. Right. Um, it amazed me that anybody did. And, then, and, that, and I thought that was interesting. Now, don't get me wrong. I think I was raised a black feminist, so I always knew black feminism was out there. So this was a really difficult uh, question for me to answer. But if I were to think about that text that, you know, when I read, I thought I might want to continue this into an academic post. It would be Double Jeopardy by Frances Bill, not because I thought that she was right about everything she said, but because I thought it made me think about things that um, I see every day um, in ways that I, I hadn't thought about it before.
1: Chrissy, thank you so much. This conversation was very rich. I learned a lot and I laughed a lot. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you
0: for the work that you do on the the unmute and all around everywhere. Um, (laughs) Appreciate it.
1: Appreciate you.
0: For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.